in Daniel chapter 1. We're going to read the first eight verses. And we hear the word of the Lord saying, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the king of the eunuchs, the chief of the eunuchs, gave the names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. You know, as we've been making our trek through the Old Testament, um, there have been a, a number of terms and a number of ideas that uh, we've been looking at together. And one of those that occurred to me this week was the term pagan. And I know I use that term probably more often than most, uh, most pastors. And I feel almost as though perhaps, I'm, uh, perhaps you think I'm being a bit harsh to, uh, to our culture and the world around us. Um, but I use that term nonetheless. We live in a land of competing gods and idols. Daniel lived in a land of competing gods and idols. Even before being taken into captivity, Israel found itself torn between two realities. The reality of serving the one true and living God who had redeemed them from Egypt. The one who had led them through the Red Sea on dry ground. The one who said, I have borne you on wings as an eagle. I've given you a land that I promised to you. They were torn between living in that reality or living in the reality of paganism. Finding strength and solace in the powers of the world. Manipulating whatever source of power there might be. Worshipping a variety of gods, whether they be 
the gods of war, the gods of love, the gods of the sun, the moon. We look at that and we think that's ridiculous. That's ludicrous. Why in the world would someone serve? Those things are part of the created world. And yet we live among people and sometimes find ourselves being tempted to follow after gods of this world. We look down upon outright paganism and yet we find that our culture as the culture of the world has always done lives in a sort of default paganism. The term pagan simply means it literally means of the village. Kind of an odd term. The pagan religions are just the religions of the village. It's that which is common. That's that which is kind of default. This world is all there is. This world is all of reality. There is nothing other than this world. And all of the powers are found within this world and can be manipulated by us. And we can work them toward toward our advantage. You know, we look at magic and we think it's ludicrous. The ancients looked at magic and thought, there's power. We can manipulate the gods. We can make life work how we want it to work. We can make it serve our ends. We should be careful before we look down upon that because we live among people who put their trust in a variety of sources of power in this world. People who find ultimate reality, power, strength in government. If only we can get the government to work like it all, then life will be hunky-dory. Everything will be safe. We'll be protected. We'll be watched over. Nothing wrong could happen to us. That's pagan thinking. We trust in money. If we can just get a little bit more, we'll be better off. We'll be stable. Life will work just like we expected as long as we can just have enough. Because we recognize that in money is power. The big buzzword, even in Christian circles, but particularly among business circles and in Christian circles, because Christian circles have uh, seen wisdom in the business world and have started forming the church as a sort of business venture, the big buzzword is influence. If we can learn how to influence others, then we can get our way. And life will work. Things will work better. We can do the right things. See, this is the world's way of thinking. And really, there are only two ways to view the world. Some... I I remember being in college and studying a variety of worldviews, I think there were seven that we studied. And um, when, I, uh, when I encountered John Oswalt, he boiled everything down and helped me to see that really there are only two worldviews. There is the biblical worldview and there is the other worldview. 
The Bible tells us that there is one true and living God. He is not a part of this world. He is not created. He has made all things. And He cannot and will not be manipulated. And He will share His glory with no one. And then there is the pagan worldview. And all of the world religions fall within one of these two categories. There either is something beyond this world, or this world is all there is. And too often, we find ourselves as Christian people trying to, trying to acknowledge that there is someone beyond, that there is a Creator, that He has redeemed us, that He is going to put everything back together in the end. And yet, we live as though He can't handle it. He can't handle our problems. He can't handle our troubles. We'll take all those things into our own hands and we'll live as though this world is all there is. And so if we can just get government to do what we want, if we can just get enough money, if we can just learn how to influence enough people, then we can make life and make ministry work. But the Gospel proclaims to us, as Paul proclaimed to his hearers in the New Testament, that Jesus is Lord. And that, that means a whole lot. That means more than is conveyed in a simple yard sign during Christmas time. That Jesus is Lord means that Caesar is not in the world of Paul. And that means that Nebuchadnezzar is not in the world of Daniel. That means that the government is not Lord. It is not the end-all, be-all. It means that our lives, I am not Lord. I am not even Lord of my life. I do not determine my own destiny. Yes, I may be shaping things and I might be in some ways steering the ship. But I can't just live how I want. Not, be, not only because I ought not, because I simply cannot. I can't wish enough to sprout wings and fly. There are some things in this world that I simply cannot do. The Gospel declares to us that Jesus is Lord, which implies that there is none other. That's why Paul said, no one can declare that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Because in the Roman world, to declare that someone else was Lord other than Caesar was to invite death upon yourself. When you read through the 12 chapters of Daniel it's perplexing, but it's, it's amazing to see how Daniel is able to interact with these world leaders. His interactions with Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, his interactions with the kings of Babylon and then the Medo-Persians. It's unbelievable to see his boldness, to see his strength, to see the courage that he has, the grace that he has. We read that Daniel found favor in the sight of the Lord. Yahweh looked upon him 
with favor. Daniel was taken to a pagan land. He was taken to a land of competing gods and idols. In fact, when he's taken, we read that Yahweh basically opened up his house, the temple, and said, take it. Matters not to me. Nebuchadnezzar brings in the troops. They take some of the gold and all the furnishings of the house of the Lord out of the temple and take them back to Nebuchadnezzar's land in Babylon. Furnish his God's houses with Yahweh's things. He's taken into a pagan land, a land of competing gods and idols. And too often in our culture and in our day and age, we find ourselves looking to Daniel merely as some fortune-telling book where we want to find in it what the future holds rather than finding in it what the Israelites found in it and what the New Testament church found in it. And that was, how do we live life in the present world? How do we live faithfully when surrounded by pagans? How is that to be done? How is it that we are able to find favor in the eyes of Yahweh as Daniel did? This morning, I want to consider with you just four quick things. Daniel was concerned most primarily with living in this present world, and he gives us four ways in which we are able to, to live faithfully in this present world in a pagan land. We live faithfully by living as citizens of Christ's kingdom. In the text from the Hebrews that Jan read for us, thank you Jan, we read of the saints of old as having lived as pilgrims, living as those passing through this present world, looking for a land that was to come, looking for a kingdom that was to come. Christ taught His disciples to pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And one of the linchpins of that prayer is found toward the beginning. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a sense in which we as God's people are to live in a longing for the kingdom of God. We are to long for it. We are to desire it. We are to pray for it. Lord, send Your kingdom. May Your rule and reign become realized. But while we long for the kingdom, we're also called as the church to live in the kingdom. That's why the church is called to be something different. We are God's people. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We are sojourners here. We are pilgrims. This is not our home, the gospel tells us. Daniel, while he lived in a pagan land, 
His feet were firmly planted, and yet he knew he was a citizen of another land. This is not some call to escapism. This is not some call to just hunkering down and hoping we get through and maybe the next life will be better. Because what the gospel really calls us to is to live presently as citizens of a kingdom that's to come. To interact with others. To love one another as though Christ is already Lord. His kingdom is coming, but His kingdom is already being established. And we're called to live in that reality. Living faithfully in a pagan land involves not just living as citizens of Christ's kingdom, but living as vessels of His grace. It's interesting to find throughout the Scriptures, God always places His people where grace is needed. You think of Israel and its founding and the land that was promised to Abraham. It was right in the middle of the markets. Right in the middle of the business of the world. Right along a path of land that all of the ancient trade passed through. Israel was placed right in the middle of the world. Daniel was taken from his land to go serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Daniel was raised up to serve some of the most powerful of all world leaders that history has ever known. And God wanted him there. I want to encourage you. Read through the book of Daniel. You read two chapters a day. Some of them are really short chapters. You'll get through it in the next six days. Read about, read his interactions with Nebuchadnezzar. Read his interactions with Darius. Read those interactions. It's fascinating. We know that Daniel was a handsome guy. The text tells us. That's partly why he was taken. He was part of the royal lineage. He was smart, good looking. It wasn't some, you know, knucklehead. In fact, he was a very gracious person. The way he interacts with the kings, he's not rude, he's not a smart aleck. Unbelievable character. God places his people where grace is needed. He places the church where grace is needed. He doesn't yoink the church out of the world when the church becomes the church. When you gave your life to Christ, he didn't say, all right, good, let's go ahead and get them on in. In fact, he prayed emphatically the night that Christ was betrayed. He prayed, Father, I'm not praying that you'd take them out of the world. I'm praying that you would leave them in the world, that you would sanctify them by your truth. Make them to be your holy people because the world needs holy people. I remember listening to a lecture a number of years ago uh, by Peter Crafton. He said what the world needs and what will ultimately win the culture war, war, because that's what everybody's talking about. That's what everybody talks about on Fox News. That's what 
Bill O'Reilly's harping on. Everybody feels as though the culture is just going down the sewer and how can we maintain some continuity with the past? How are we going to win this war? And he said, quite simply, what, what will win that war is more saints. More people being made holy. So God puts us where we're needed. He puts us where grace is needed. Because He calls us to be vessels of His grace. You know, we don't ever know what others are enduring. You might have some idea of what your neighbors, your co-workers are going through. Lindsay checks me all the time on this. When I get frustrated... Uh, when folks are driving like maniacs or folks are poking, Rick, you were talking to me about this earlier this week. She always points out, they could be going through a really tough time. Lindsay, I want to be upset for a moment. Let me have this. Quit spoiling my fun. I want to be aggravated. That person does not know how to drive. Yeah, that's the the easy thing for us to to laugh about and joke about and see truly in ourselves some faults. But there are some of our closest friends that we don't know really what demons they're fighting. What fears paralyze them. There are people with whom we work and we haven't the foggiest notion as to what they're going through. And so as channels and vessels of Christ's grace, we are called not to live higher and almost cynical toward others and what they might or might not be going through. Our attitude ought not to be buck up and deal with it. Our attitude ought to be that of the saints of the Scriptures. You know, I think, um, particularly in our culture, the church too often thinks it's being like the prophets in proclaiming doom and gloom and we pass billboards at signs and marquees outside the fronts of churches that almost have a very dismissive and joking response about the hell that is to come. And we think, oh, that's us being biblical. Because the prophets were like that, right? You read the prophets in the Old Testament, they were weeping. They were not gleefully looking forward to judgment. They knew that judgment hurt. They knew that judgment meant death. They knew that judgment was a bad thing. You look at the life of Daniel, you find that him being a vessel of God's grace came with a number of characteristics. He was winsome. Perhaps the most, one of the most winsome people in all of Scripture. The grace and the class that Daniel had. And these may sound like silly terms to associate with biblical characters, but he was a classy, classy person. Think of Darius's love for him. When, when Daniel finds himself in the lion's den because Darius's 
cohorts have pulled one over on him, and he's signed a decree that the, the Medes and the Persians, even the king, can't revoke his own decree. He's bound. Daniel is thrown in the den of lions, and Darius frets overnight. Darius is a pagan king, and he loves Daniel because he's, there's just something about him that's gracious and winsome. He was humble. He had true humility. A lesson that he, in his seeming love for Nebuchadnezzar, has to walk Nebuchadnezzar through as Nebuchadnezzar finds himself crawling on the ground, eating grass and growing hair like eagle's feathers. Really really weird story as Nebuchadnezzar is turned into a beast and is humbled. That didn't seem like a fun thing for Daniel. He cared about those. Being a person of grace means being a thankful person. Having gratitude and giving thanksgiving. Throughout the scriptures, there's no escape from our calling to be thankful. See, the big thing for Daniel... The big thing for us in being vessels of God's grace in the lives of others and in our pagan land is to make ourselves personally invested. When Daniel prays, he prays with a burden. He is troubled by judgment. In chapter 7, he does not like the judgment that they are enduring. In chapter 9, he says, we have sinned. We have blown it, Yahweh. He doesn't say those buffoons that you've called me to serve. That world out there, he says, we have. He's connected. He is personally invested. He doesn't see things as me versus them, us versus them. He recognizes that he is a part of the situation. And if he's going to be a vessel of God's grace, he'd better acquaint himself with it, as Christ did. The prophet Isaiah told us that he was acquainted with grief. He made himself like us to redeem us. For to live faithfully in a pagan land, we'd better also live as people of true hope. Advent is just a few weeks away. It's drawing near. And one of the things we'll be harping on is that hope is not wishful thinking. Whoever told you that hope is just wishing, lied to you. Biblical hope is not wishing. It is not trying to think positive despite the circumstances. Biblical hope, Christian hope, is based upon God's faithfulness. It is a confident living now in the present based upon what we see God has done in the past. He has always been faithful. That's why Thanksgiving is so important. That's 
One of the reasons Thanksgiving is so important. It reminds us of God's faithfulness. It reminds us we have something for which to give thanks. God has been good to us. He has shown His mercy to us. That's why history matters. Not just so we don't repeat the same mistakes, but so that we have hope for the future. We look at the lives of people who lived in courage and had faith, and we see that God is able to pull through. He always has, and He always will. This week I came across a, uh, listening to a podcast, and the guys were discussing uh, hope, and they said something very fascinating I want to share with you. Hope is the balm for despair. It keeps us from giving up. You know, despair, fear, it's paralyzing. Folks in despair find themselves unable to move. And hope cures that. Hope is also the balm for complacency. You know, that deadly sin, sloth or sloth in the Latin, it's not laziness. It's just a pure and simple disinterest. Not caring. People who are complacent, it's not that they can't move, it's that they won't move. They just lack the will. They lack the desire. Living as people of true hope, we find ourselves enabled to move and wanting to move. Wanting to do things. Wanting to step into the future because we have confidence in it. Because God has always been faithful in the past. All throughout Daniel's prophecy, you find Daniel's a person of great hope. He's got unwavering confidence that Yahweh is going to do great things. He has hope for his pagan kings. God promises him that he's going to purify for himself a remnant and bring them back to the land. And Daniel, because he recognizes what hope is, is able to say he'll do it because he's always done it. He's never lied to us. He's never deceived us. And so Daniel... Think of all the circumstances he found himself in. His friends cast into the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar was a mixed bag. He was an odd, odd guy. There are times that he seems like he's on the cusp of believing that Yahweh is the one true God. And then there are times where he does knuckleheaded things like that. And 
Daniel being thrown in the lion's den, all the different things, all the people that hated him, all the things that uh, bad that happened to him and to his friends. He could have very easily given up. He could have very easily found himself complacent and in despair saying, good riddance, forget about it. But he never did. If we're to live faithfully in a pagan land, we must also live as bearers of divine mission. The church in its DNA is to be on mission. Too often we think of mission as a foreign concept. Foreign concept kind of in a twofold way. Either it's just off our radars, you know, we're not about mission, or we think, oh, missions means things happening overseas, things we give money to. We had a friend this week, Holly Mulheisen, returned to Japan, and it was neat seeing her interact with uh, Blair on Facebook as she was boarding planes, you know, saying, I'm headed your way, and let's try to get together, and that sort of thing. There are a number of folks in our congregation who support Holly. David mentioned the letter we got this week from Stephen and Laurie Vaughn, missionaries to India. And as they uh, expect a baby and then are moving back to India soon after this baby's arrival, we're reminded that missions, yes, is something that happens around the world, but to be on mission is something that the present and current and, and local church is called to. Because the world is all around us. The world is not on the other side of a globe. The world is in our neighborhoods. The world is across the street. The world is next door. And we're called to be people who bear the burden of God's mission for the world. Again, Daniel does not live in some escapist detachment from what is happening. Even living in a pagan land, even even serving a king like Nebuchadnezzar and later Darius, Belshazzar, all those pagan kings, Daniel is living as a bearer of what God is going to do and what He is doing. We're called to live faithfully in a pagan land. We're called to live as people who have the hope of the gospel. We're called to live as people who know and serve and love the one true God. We're called to be His church. His people. You probably already noticed, either by looking up here or by looking in your bulletin, that we're going to celebrate Holy Communion here in just a few moments. And one of the things that amazes me 
by the celebration of this meal is that we find in it a whole lot of things being pulled together. It's a meal that we celebrate in a moment, at a particular time. It's something, something that the church presently celebrates, but it's something that points us to the past. It points us to 2,000 years ago. In it, we declare what Christ has done. In it, we faithfully follow Christ as He says, do this in remembrance of Me. But it's a meal that also looks ahead. Because Christ told His disciples that this would be a meal that He would celebrate with them in His kingdom. It's a meal that drives our eyes back and drives our eyes forward. It's a foretaste of the kingdom. It's a means of divine grace. If we're to be vessels of God's grace to others, we'd better put ourselves under the faucet of His grace and say, Lord, we need You. We need Your Son, Jesus. It's a reminder of our hope. For Christ is our hope. His death and resurrection are our hope. And it's a meal of divine nourishment. As we receive the elements, we pray that God would enable us to receive the grace of our Lord into our hearts by faith. I think it's telling that Daniel, his prophecy account, begins with a discussion of eating. They're brought into the king's house and they're to learn the language and the literature. They're going to go through Babylonian lit, or British lit yet. They're going to learn the ways of the Chaldeans. They're going to eat the Chaldeans' food. They're going to enjoy the Chaldeans' wine. And Daniel essentially says, no thanks, we'll pass. Our Lord has already prepared a meal for us. We'd rather follow those meals. The church has been given a meal. A meal in which we receive the grace of God and a meal in which we proclaim what He has done through His Son to redeem us. A meal that points our eyes toward heaven. A meal that keeps our feet firmly planted on earth. Because we're called to be the church, to be the body, now, today, here. You are called to be the body of Christ to the people with whom you work to the people who give you attitude, to the people who are short-tempered with you. They look to you, whether they know it or not, they look to you wondering if they could see the love of Jesus. As we prepare for 
this meal as we prepare to approach His table. Let's pray. Let's prepare ourselves through singing. Let's pray now.